You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban, and Imam Rana Atta Rahman. Um, and what happened over the weekend, Rana? Anything um, interesting? Yeah, um, to share I mean, with myself and uh, the listeners. I mean, you're very uh, keen on like hearing about well, how I'm just uh, wondering how, just how a team how a team won I, and how I, a team I, lost. I, so I, I, I'm well, no, I didn't. I didn't even go there. I was just merely asking you how you're feeling over the weekend. Anything special happened? Um, well, yeah, it was a it was a very good uh, social gathering for right. the Voice of Islam team and. Yeah. Um, it was a very nice little brotherly um, shoot them up. Shoot them up. Yeah, it was. It, I mean, it was funny how it, this is meant to be like a team building process, right. and then all of a sudden you see like, oh, well, this is this is someone who I'm gonna who I don't <laughs> want on my team, and I want to go for. So um, it was yeah. it was actually my first ever like sort of um, engagement with the with the with a wider team as well. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice to uh, get yeah. to know people. And uh, yeah, I think I think that was the thing. We had a a, a team building function, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, where the uh, all members of the Voice of Islam, uh, whether you're a producer, presenter, researcher, yeah. uh, we all joined up uh, in the woods in Cobham, out in Surrey, and uh, engaged in a bit of paintballing, a bit of fun. It was yeah. really fun as well. Yeah. So um, Boys with toys. Boys with toys, <laughs> and I would have liked to have played more games in that true, sense. Yeah, true. boys' games. So uh, <laughs> it was... Hopefully we go again, and hopefully yeah. you know this time we know you know who's who's a good tactician. Yeah, and exactly. To, get, uh, get, get the good runners. Good, good runners as well, yeah, and uh, yeah, great tacticians. So yeah, it was a, it was a it was a good day, uh, and uh, I will only just say that the victorious blue team. Yeah, yeah. Is um, that why you're wearing blue as well? <laughs> funny enough, yes, you are. You're, you're correct. And uh, I was just lucky enough to be chosen as the captain of the blue team, and we were victorious over the two uh, arenas. But how know. many how many paintballs did you actually have left? I had none because you know oh, that, you... you remember the last game that we played was the last just a free for all. Oh, okay, wasn't okay. It? So I was I think I was just even pulling the trigger whilst there was nothing. Oh, there. Well, there was a rumor <laughs> going like in the first three games, I think you had maybe seventy percent well, yeah, of your. Listen, pal- <laughs> I was I, I hold my hand up. I was tagged the first one. Yeah. yeah. I was useless in the first two games. But at least you were honest about that. Well, you know, you had to be honest, yeah. There was yeah. there was some kind of like uh, insinuation of cheaters during the game. <laughs> and look, we are voice of Islam. We we preach Islam and it's always, you know, our, our practice to be truthful yeah, truth. to the end. But it's funny when you put an air kind of like a BB gun in someone's hands, yeah. how that kind of truth Oh my god. And then evaporate. especially when you the, the evidence is there, okay, well I didn't <laughs> yeah, I didn't exactly. get shot. <laughs> exactly. Well you're covered in yellow plate. Yeah. I'm sure I didn't get shot. Yeah, I didn't get right? shot. Okay, oh, but anyway, <laughs> less of that. Uh, moving on. On Monday's show, we do have uh, some seriousness in in the uh, in in the studio. We address uh, you know, contemporary topics of the day. What are our two p- topics for the day? Well, the first topic is um, very relevant, and uh, it's probably been relevant for decades, if not centuries, mm-hmm. in terms of war profiteering right. and how it's currently going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be having a very good and lengthy discussion and pr- maybe some very interesting debates on this subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is a bit more, uh, you know, personal per- mm-hmm. for everyone and uh, in regards to mental health as well. So mm-hmm. it's friendship. What is the what yeah. is the importance of friendship and maybe how to build friendship on mm-hmm. as exactly. well? Just the different aspects of, you know, just you know, I suppose it's something rather that we take for granted just having friends. Yeah, it's one hundred percent, and yeah. uh, you know, not just the 
the fact that we take it for granted, but the fact that uh, they will remain forever, mm-hmm. or um, you know how whatever we however we treat them. Uh, mm-hmm. they won't drift away. Mm-hmm. So these are things that we definitely take for granted. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But uh, without further ado, we'll jump straight into our first topic, which is you know, weapon profiteering, uh, the, or the profiteering that you get from the sale of arms. And, you know, we've seen currently uh, the latest conflict in you know, Western Europe, uh, which is the Ukraine-Russian conflict, and how that's driving rapid growth of arms trade. Uh, Now, the war in Ukraine has intensified uh, this particular trade, this element of uh, the arms trade, and has enabled huge trends of weapon profiteering at the cost of human life, prolonged uh, conflict, and no no real kind of like sense of uh, a, a voyage or not a voyage but actually an attempt at peace really right peace. Uh, conflicts in the Middle East have been driving the profiteering in the arms industry for over several decades now but with the Russian Ukraine war the desire amongst the uh, countries to improve their defenses uh, the world stands at a critical juncture in protecting its peace. Now, for example, the United States nearly doubled the number and price tag of ava- approved arms sales to NATO allies in 2022 compared with 2021. So that's going to be a huge figure, right? Uh, as alliance members scramble to stock up on high-end weapons in the wake of Russia's war in Ukraine. Now, this conflict... It's not the only cause, though. Uh, arms trade has also increased between global powers, uh, which include here domestically in the UK, uh, China, Russia and France, uh, with countries, you know, well, basically buyers uh, in the Middle East and Asia. Now, is there anything that we can you know, take from the Holy Quran regarding this? Yeah, from the Holy Quran, in part uh, of part of verse 9 in chapter 5 of the Holy Quran, we find an excellent piece of guidance on how to build a just and peaceful world, it is said, and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with inju- than with justice. Be always just, that is nearer to righteousness. So the Holy Quran, um, as with its entire teachings, has emphasized on the importance of justice um, mm. from all aspects. Uh, we would also maybe uh, read on in regards to how, you know, people who have the power to um, bring peace to uh, peace to the fore mm-hmm. should use that power to uh, make justice and peace um, prevail all over mm-hmm. the world so yeah because it seems to me that you know all this and we've seen it even here domestically in the UK that before you know instead of sending peace envoys yeah to get some kind of detente, some kind of agreement yeah. uh, as to what's happening there, because it's been literally just over a year now yeah. since that conflict started. But instead of that, it's whether we're deciding to send here in the UK yeah. jet planes, jet planes, right? and tanks, tanks maybe, yeah. and armaments. I mean, yeah. I can't imagine how much a tank costs. It's in the millions. It must be a million. Yeah, right? These yeah? these. these um, these uh, ones that are going to be used in state-of-the-art warfare are going to be... Yeah, exactly. A jet plane can't be like a couple of quid, right? Oh, no, no. So and, um, and the fact that even if you had the money to buy it, you probably won't... Uh, it's only going to be sold to um, people who are in the in this war zone. And, yeah. uh, and then the ramification of that is if something uh, of that nature... If we're going to send... Okay, let's just take a figure out, right? Yeah. 1.5 million for a jet plane. Yeah. Send them five jet planes, right? 
that's that five five that's seven seven point five million yeah, pounds. These, the ones you're talking about are probably not even the ones that are going to be okay. Uh, they're going to be ones that are going to be shot down. So my away. next question, Lerana, <laughs> is who's paying for that? It's the it's it, it's 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 a good question because um, I think that in terms of the uh, countries which which do not have a strong economy they will they're already in debt and mm-hmm. with the IMF and uh, they need more and more of this mm-hmm. debt to uh, pay it back to the source of the uh, you know wherever this income is coming from yeah. and um, you know they're just further falling into a debt mm-hmm. and uh, they're just buying all of these mm-hmm. things which they well, might need or they might not need I mean I'm just looking okay from a selfish point of view right we're, we're in the UK we happen to have a cost of living crisis currently, right? We have all the unions, bar none, striking. We have nurses striking. We have junior doctors striking. Just correct me if I'm wrong, right? If I've missed someone out, right? Uh, Border border forces striking. Trains are striking. Teachers are striking. Okay, the list keeps keeps going going on, on, right? So instead of the government maybe making uh, the right move and having negotiations and giving money to them so they won't strike and provide us with public services, we are then going to, with our taxes, not pay for public services, but we're going to pay. And you know what? The rationale behind sending more weaponry to the Ukraine is being sold to us by, well, we're defending democracy. Yes, is that is that good enough? <clears throat> look, it's um, it. You have to look at it from that point of view. That if the same issue arises with yourself, mm-hmm. so um, for instance, if England has a, where I'm talking from a British perspective, um, we're living in England. So if we ever do have that uh, issue in regards to the one that Ukraine has, or uh, you could say um, in the Indian part of Kashmir, that mm-hmm. as well. Um, even Palestine these are sort of like uh, you know conflict areas um, what would we ex- how would we expect to be defended or how would we defend ourselves so um, it, yes and no I would say look they that's their point of view um, mm-hmm. this is just more of a I'm not I'm not a we, neither I am nor are you a uh, st- expert in war strat- strategy and mm-hmm. why it's happening but in from a more general point of view uh, I can understand that why uh, they, if this is the, if this is the the, the ethos that we're de- uh, we're defending democracy, mm-hmm. maybe this is what they are using um, mm. as a reason to do it. So mm. um, uh, no, I it think could it's... it could come to it. Could, you could be in that position. Mm. Uh, you're we're fortunate enough uh, in, enough not to be in that position, mm-hmm. and to ever not and to always avoid becoming into that position. Maybe uh, this is the right thing to do. That's what they mm. probably. But I would contend that we are not at war. Uh, and and, the UK and I would are not at war, um, and I would hope we never are yeah. at war. We, and uh, if so, we ever are at war, we would expect, um, yeah. you know, uh, our allies uh, is that if that's the word, uh, our allies to um, also join in to make sure that you know our state of fear and uh, destruction can come uh, can turn into a state of of peace. Mm. Mm. So, so I think what I was trying to get at was that you know under this flag of democracy, yeah. which is fine. We live in a democratic yeah. state uh, where we elect uh, our own officials to yeah. govern over us. But isn't there a better use of the funds? 100%. Right. And uh, for that, you know, you just have to somehow um, 
avoid even getting to that point where these uh, these funds are going to be have to have to be used for purchase of uh, arms and mm-hmm. uh, fighter jets for uh, tanks and all of mm-hmm. that stuff. But um, you know, this is uh, these are as you must have heard many times before in nearly every other discussion or any other subject. You know, everything has a domino or knock-on effect. So. Mm-hmm. These things will continue to build up and build up, and maybe this is also a, a part of that process of a domino effect, which could uh, lead to maybe s- something even far greater mm-hmm. in the future, or mm-hmm. it could, it might eventually uh, lead towards a more peaceful situation. So um, it is that is it is part of the process, and mm-hmm. you would hope that uh, it the process works towards peace rather than towards uh, yeah exactly. I mean we yeah. are a voice of Islam. We you know promote peace. Yep. You know, love for all, hatred for none. Mm-hmm. But if we look at some of the figures regarding uh, the arms industry, right now in 2021, the U.S. government approved 14 possible major arms sales to NATO members. Now this was worth around about 15 point 15 and a half billion dollars. In 2022, that's jumped up to 24 possible major arms sales uh, worth 28 billion. Dollars, uh, twenty-eight billion dollars, uh, which includes one point two four, well, one point two four billion uh, dollars worth of arms sales to uh, expected future NATO member Finland. Now, according to foreign policy analysis of uh, two years of data from the U.S. Uh, Defense Department's uh, Defense Security Cooperation Agency, now some of the approved U.S. Uh, arms sales in 2022 were years in the making, such as Germany's plan to purchase. F-35 fighter jets in a deal worth around $8.4 billion. Uh, Many other major arms sales were rushed after the war broke out in Ukraine as European countries on NATO's eastern flank hastened their efforts to bulk up their own military capabilities to backfill the equipment they shipped uh, to the Ukraine and deter Moscow for any um, from any more, I would say, military incursions on alliance territory. That's what I'm saying regarding this, that, you know, there's that fear that uh, President Putin, President Vladimir Putin will engage in some kind of, uh, you know, scramble for the rest of Europe. Europe, Yeah. Right. Now, I don't believe he has actually said that he wants to invade Europe. Yes. And uh, yeah, he he's repeated. He's repeatedly said he wants to have a buffer zone between NATO countries and himself, right. which I'm not agreeing with a lot of po- uh, Putin's policies, but I can see the common sense side of that because you don't want to have a land border with your enemy. You yeah. want to have a buffer of neutrality. Right, And but I, I would like to ask you this, that for instance, um, knowing uh, the, um, the, the power of of Russia, knowing that they've moved into this buffer zone, right? So mm-hmm. how do you know that this buffer zone ends with Because Ukraine? he hasn't said that he wants anything well, else. In, for, for now. But, for, yeah, now. for now. Um, and the thing is that it's almost as if we're seeing a proxy. I, I personally think we're seeing a proxy war yeah. within the Ukraine. Right. Ukraine has been courted by the West, USA uh, in particular, as to, look, watch out for what Putin's done, because look at what he did in 2014 at Belarus, right? Now, fair enough, he invaded Belarus and reclaimed Belarus. And why did NATO do nothing then, then? 
this is the thing. So, um, so you why know, are they doing something now? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just putting it out there. Yeah, you know, I'm not expecting you to have the answers. I'm just saying, look, come on, yeah, we're we're all pointing fingers at the end of the day, and Putin is a dictator. Yeah. He's shown that. He's shown he's capable of everything. But still, is there? You, you know, it can't be the case that oh, uh, the argument always resides with, or the right yeah. or always resides in one case, one right? Case, yeah. Every argument's got two sides to it, and it's your perspective of it, exactly. right? Yep. So maybe it's a case of like, well, I'm not saying this is correct. A theory is that, oh, Putin has a legacy. Yep. He's coming to the end of his presidential days. He may well not want to feel that he was the president who um, oversaw the, well, who let, the breakup yes. of the uh, Soviet Union, yeah. uh, as it was in Glasnost yeah. uh, with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, right? Yeah. And so lessening of his power. Yeah. And I can, and I can also allow I can, the, I can, I can yeah. believe that, right? And yeah. then allow Western NATO to gain dominance, right? Yeah. So really, if you actually take the characters out, right, of the of this scenario, the names out, the names out, yeah. right, and you say like, okay, right. I've got a neighbour. We've got a, you know, I live in a terraced house, right, along a terrace. I've got a neighbour who I don't particularly like, but I've got a neighbour in between, right, who is kind of a mediator, right, between the two of us. I'm going to buy his house, and I'm going to move next door to the one who I don't like, right. And we've never had, we've, we will never like each other because you know what, ideology. Ideologies are totally different, different yeah. right? How's that going to make? We're going to be really bad bedfellows, right? So yeah. we do need that buffer, and for whatever reason, yes, that buffer is being eroded. Yeah, some could argue, right? Okay, it's it's against Putin's kind of like saber rattling yeah. that we need to arm ourselves because we've seen ultimately who's gaining. Yeah, it's the U.S. arms trade which is exactly, gaining, yeah. right? Because hey, hey ho. Finland, you're not even a full, fully fledged NATO member, yep. and because of all this, you know, schmuggins that's been happening with the Ukrainian war, send us some of your money here. Suddenly, okay, Finland want to join NATO, and they're initiating. So has Sweden. Yeah. I can't. I mean, okay, who's to know? Maybe Putin's ultimate plan is to kind of like grab those countries. I don't think so because he can't even do Ukraine. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, and uh, I hope, you know, in, in regards to um, invasions and uh, escalating to that point where he actually does uh, invade or take other countries, I mean, that will just lead to yeah, serious exactly. Well, I mean, hopefully, this, this so is hopefully what I'm never does go, go you know, to we, we, we want to get a negotiated peace. But to talk more about the arms trade, we're joined by our first guest of today. Uh, we're joined by... I should say, uh, Dr. Sam Perlow Freeman, who is a, a member of or represents Campaign Against Arms Trade. Peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Sam. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. you too, and thanks for having me on. Well, you're, you're more than welcome. So we're talking about, uh, w well, the profiteering that is coming from mm -hmm. 
the arms trade. Now, uh, mm-hmm. UK-made weapons are being used in attacks on the Yemen, on on Yemen. Mm-hmm. Now, which which have killed thousands of uh, yeah. c- uh, civilians and created you know the Indeed. world's most probably the world's largest humanitarian catastrophe. Now, how do countries like the UK get away with selling arms to countries like Saudi Arabia that have records of violating international human uh, human law? Well, they get away with it because the regulations that countries have introduced on arms exports, those that have introduced sort of any sort of meaningful controls, mm-hmm. are deliberately written quite vaguely with a lot of room for interpretation. Um, so that they may say uh, a lot of um, good words about human rights, about mm-hmm. international humanitarian law, and about sort of not inflaming conflict, but it's up to the governments themselves to interpret what that means in particular cases, each arms sale being considered on a case-by-case basis. And in practice, governments put the interests of their own arms industry before all those uh, more ethical and human considerations Mm -hmm. in the great majority of cases. Some countries will take a bit more care than others. Uh, The the UK, uh, in in terms of Saudi Arabia, the UK is one of the ones who's um, been most willing to sell to Saudi Arabia, most willing to ignore uh, the, the, the toll on civilians, mm-hmm. whereas some other European countries have stopped or limited their sales to Saudi Arabia. But all countries, to a greater or lesser extent, put a very high priority on their own arms industries, including their ability to export. Now, we believe that in continuing to sell arms to Saudi for use in the Yemen war, the UK government has gone beyond any reasonable interpretation of the law. Even though it's written to be vague, there are some clear provisions that uh, an an arms export will not be approved if there is a clear risk that the equipment might, not will, might be used to to commit serious violations of international humanitarian law. We believe that has been abundantly clearly met in terms of Saudi Arabia's um, horrific war in Yemen, which is why we are again taking the government court to try to, uh, as we had the hearing just at the end of January, beginning Mm -hmm. of February, to try and stop those sales. And what was the outcome of that, uh, Sam? We are waiting to hear. Uh, It will be a couple of months at least, um, but sometime by sort of probably at the latest, the end of July, before Mm. the courts go into recess. But ultimately, Samia, I mean, as regards to, say, for instance, the court finds in your favour, and Mm -hmm. they find that the UK government has, in fact, breached uh, humanitarian laws by selling certain munitions to Saudi Arabia. What is actually the penalty then? What What are the punitive measures that the court can... Uh, can impose upon the uh, you know oppose upon the uh, the government. This, this is not a, crim- a matter of criminal law. Oh, okay. Um, we 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 are not in this case accusing ministers or civil servants of committing a crime in approving arms sales. There's a separate 
investigation um, that NGOs have put in a load of information to the International Criminal Court to investigate that. That's a separate case. But in this case, if the judges agree that the government has violated the UK's own laws on arms exports, then most likely... The judges will say how they've got thing, they've, the government's got things wrong, mm-hmm. what aspects of their decision-making process are completely unreasonable and, and thus unlawful, and they'll tell the government to go back and retake the condition, those decisions based on a lawful pro- process that meets the... Uh, that meets the uh, that addresses the problems that the judges have found. Mm. So um, whether that will in practice stop the arms sales will depend on how strong the judges' criticisms of the government's uh, decisions would be, you know, and what they say would need to be done to make a decision-making process reasonable and lawful. Um, we hope that it will be strong enough as to make to make it impossible this time for the government to wiggle out of it. Mm. We won our first case on this back in 2019. Um, the, the judges said at the Court of Appeal that the government's decisions were irrational and therefore unlawful and told them to go back and take them again. But the, the, the government found a way around it. They said they'd addressed the judges' criticisms and still that everything was okay and that the arms sales could go ahead, hence this second case. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sam, a global arms trade treaty, uh, sorry, a global arms trade treaty uh, imposing strict rules to regulate international arms transfers has been in force for over five years. Mm. Yet global arms trading is still on the rise and continues to, continues to fuel human rights abuses. Um, so the question here is, is it even worth having these regulations? Well, first of all, I don't think the ATT was ever really intended to seriously regulate the arms trade for the most part. It was pushed most heavily by the UK, one of the world's biggest arms exporters, and which, as I've said, has a very strong interest in supporting its own arms industry. In a way, it was more intended to... um, meet sort of international public concerns about the arms trade or appear to meet it uh, while doing as little uh, as possible. The regulations are not strict. If anything, they are even vaguer and more open to interpretation than the UK and the EU's um, arms export licensing regulations. Um, So... In practice, each state gets to decide how to interpret the ATT, and in practice, there's very little that can firmly say you cannot make this arms sale. There's also no international enforcement mechanism. Mm. Um, However, I don't think the ATT is completely worthless um, for, for, for several reasons. For one thing, it's set a standard. It's put in an international treaty signed by the great majority of countries the principle that the arms trade needs to be controlled, among other things, to prevent abuses of human rights, to prevent prevent attacks on civilians, 
uh, crimes against humanity and so forth to prevent uh, escalating wars and conflicts. And that is a standard to which the international uh, public opinion to NGO community, uh, movements for justice, the media can hold governments to account, can say, you have said these words, you have signed this treaty, now um, what are you doing about it? Mm -hmm. And secondly, in a few cases, despite the vagueness of the the rules, various uh, groups have been able to mount legal challenges to government's arms exports in some cases, very often in relation to Saudi Arabia, based on the provisions of the ATT. Um, I'm just a bit more uh, interested in this part where you say that the uh, the UK has enforced, uh, they, they want to enforce the ATT, but they are themselves are not, um, you know, they, they're a bit laxed on it. What, what could be the reason, you know, why are they not, uh, if, they, if they are enforcing it, if they are the ones who are so strict and uh, so uh, determined about it, why are they not the ones following it themselves? Well, Tony Blair, uh, when he was Prime Minister, first suggested an arms trade treaty in 2004. And that's when his government had come under an awful lot of criticism from mass public movements uh, across the UK because of invading Iraq. Mm -hmm. And there'd also been a lot of criticism over uh, his government's arms export policy from... Uh, from the media, from civil society, people like Oxfam and Amnesty, uh, as well as smaller organisations like mine. And these organisations like Oxfam and Amnesty were pressing for an arms trade treaty, saying you, we need to control these arms exports, they're having a terrible effect. And so then Tony Blair surprised everyone and said, yes, OK, let's have an arms trade treaty. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, He started a big international push, which was ultimately successful, to get the majority of world countries to negotiate this treaty. But I think it was it was always with the intention of um, being as vague as possible, as open to interpretation as Mm. possible. So almost just playing the arms industry, lip service to the humanitarian the opposition mm. of the public and of groups like Oxfam and Amnesty by saying, we're going to do this process, we're going to get a treaty. Even bringing these NGOs into the negotiation process only to leave them with a treaty that fell far, far short of what, of what they had been wanting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, just briefly, uh, Sam... What action has you know, your uh, organisation campaigned against uh, the arms trade? You know, what, what are you guys doing to try and stop the arms trade then, in practical ways? We, oper- we operate on many levels. So one, as I said, is the legal. We're taking the government to court. Mm-hmm. And we actually won the first case. And now, as the government wriggled out of it, we're f- taking the second case on. Uh, another is in terms of just general pop- popular pressure. We inform people about the arms trade, about what uh, the UK is doing. We do this through our website, our emails to supporters, uh, through the media. We get um, we ask people to you know write to MPs, sign petitions, the usual things. We have a lot of protests, public protests, especially at arms fairs. 
these horrendous exhibitions like DSEI, which will um, come to London's Docklands again in September, where um, the, the, the world's biggest, hundreds and hundreds of arms companies from dozens of countries show off their uh, weapons of war mm-hmm. to to delegates from, again, from dozens and dozens of countries, including some of the world's worst human rights abusers like Saudi Arabia. Um, so uh, we, we often have protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it's quite visible. Yes. So mm-hmm. so we, we, we do everything um, from the uh, so, sort of very sort of um, detailed technical mm-hmm. legal things and, and research uh, on different aspects of the arms trade to these very visible public protests. And mm-hmm. in terms of successes... Well, the fact that we won our first court case um, was clearly a success. Mm-hmm. It didn't stop all the arms sales. But I think what it did is it's made this, um, the fact that, that Saudi Arabia um, is, is com- was committing such atrocities, is committing such mm-hmm. atrocities in Yemen, such an embarrassment. It's, it's possible, and some of our colleagues on the ground in Yemen say they think that that has had a restraining effect to some mm-hmm. extent. Obviously not enough. Yeah, it's throwing it, a light uh, but, on, on, on something that the public is not aware of, really. Yeah, that yeah. Um, perhaps uh, the, the, the Saudis have not been able to be quite as indiscriminate and brutal since this all started mm-hmm. as, as they would otherwise have been. Mm. Um, in some local protests, we've um, our supporters who, who've engaged in actions against arms uh, fairs have succeeded in chasing those arms fairs out of their towns and cities. Mm. Uh, the, the organisers or the, the venues have just decided that it's too much trouble and controversy to host them. Mm-hmm. So they've had to move to other more favourable uh, locations mm. for them. Mm. Um, so, so quite, quite uh, dramatic uh, the effect that your campaign has got uh, or has has brought to uh, the issue of the arms trade. Uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Sam Perla Freeman, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you for joining us on the drive. And to answer. you. Thanks very much for having me on. Okay. Thank you very Bye much. Bye for now. 0208 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. So I'm just going to play uh, our listeners a audio clip. Now, this audio clip is actually uh, back in 2017, where His Holiness uh, Mazra Ahmad, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, addressed the National Peace Symposium here in the UK and actually spoke about the arms trade. Sadly, with the passing of time, it seems that we are losing our ability to listen and to tolerate opposing views and perspectives. Opening the channels of communication and facilitating dialogue is essential. Otherwise, the world's malaise will only get deeper. Anyway, I have cited various reports that suggest we are moving towards further warfare and bloodshed, both at an international and national level. We are seeing polarization and a hardening of attitude towards one another. Instead of pointing fingers and blaming one another, now is the time for solution. In my opinion, 
there is one ready-made solution that can have an instant impact and begin the process of healing the world. I refer to the international arms trade, which I believe has to be curbed and restricted. We all know that in order to fuel their economies, Western nations are selling weapons abroad, including to those nations that are embroiled in warfare and armed conflicts. Furthermore, a United Nations report published last year found that when it comes to the sale of arms, normal rules of law do not apply. It found that an array of companies, individuals, and countries had long been contravening an international arms embargo on Libya and supplying arms to different factions there. Hence, even where some limited rules fun. apply, <laughs> they are not being properly enforced. Whilst the primary interest of every nation should be the well-being of mankind and achieving peace, it is a sad truth that business interests and the pursuit of wealth invariably take priority over such concerns. Reflecting this narrow self-interest, a well-known well -known CNN host recently said that curbing the arms trade could result in a loss of jobs amongst American defense companies. During a live interview, he said, there's a lot of jobs at stake. Certainly, if a lot of these defense contractors stop selling warplanes, other sophisticated equipment to Saudi Arabia, there's going to be a significant loss of jobs, of revenue here in the United States. Furthermore, it is sometimes argued that the sale of weapons may actually encourage peace as weapon can act as a deterrent. In my opinion, this view is completely senseless and only encourages the further production and sale of extremely dangerous weapons. Indeed, it is such justification that have caused the world to become embroiled in a never-ending arms race. For the sake of the good of mankind, governments should disregard fears that their economies will suffer if the arms trade is curbed. Instead, they should think about the type world of uh, world they, they wish to bequeath to those that follow them. So those were the words, very telling words, actually, from His Holiness Mirza, uh, Mr. Ahmed, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Now, we're joined by our next guest of the day to talk more about the arms trade and the profiteering that uh, comes from the arms trade. Uh, and it's uh, David Swanson, who is an author, activist and journalist and also radio host. He's a campaign coordinator for RootsAction.org. Peace and blessings be upon you, David. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, we're talking about um, the arms trade and the profiteering that results from it. Now, since the start of the war last year, it's just, just gone over a year now, the uh, conflict in the Ukraine between uh, Ukraine, and, uh, Ukraine and Russia. Now, U.S. has spent $113.6 billion providing aid to the Ukraine. What impact is this having on how much the U.S. is able to spend domestically on you know, things that matter to the U.S.? 
Well, of course, the the phrase aid there uh, refers in part to what's traditionally thought of by most people as actual aid, uh, mm-hmm. you know, money, food, housing, uh, and shelter. Part of that authority to uh, weapons, uh, deadly weapons, uh, which you know the United States government, unlike a lot of governments around the world, talks about its foreign aid. Uh, 40-some percent of which is always weapons. Uh, Uh, The United States, uh, with Russia in a distant but significant second place, is the top supplier of weapons to the entire world, uh, to openly brutal dictatorships, to so-called democracies, to every continent uh, on Earth. It's big business. Uh, And so, yes, $113 billion, much of it in weapons, you know, sounds like a lot. But the United States government spends about a trillion dollars uh, every year on militarism, uh, about $850 billion in the Pentagon budget every year, and rising significantly every year. Uh, I mean, 3% of a trillion dollars, according to the UN, could end starvation globally. One and a half... How ridiculous does that sound, really? No, I'm just saying, David, I mean, just, you know, like you said, you know, 3% of... The you know the national budget will end, yeah, will end kind of like starvation in the world. I mean, it's just uh, to me, I find that um, you know the, the you know the how 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 can that be really? How can we have uh, that wastage really? Well, it's uh, it's an open secret, you know. It's not talked about in U.S. media outlets. Uh, but everyone can look it up. Uh, the U.S. Mm-hmm. government budget is publicly available, uh, and it's more than any country has ever before spent on militarism. Uh, it's uh, as mu- about as much, almost as much, as the rest of the world put together. Uh, when you put the big U.S. weapons customers, the NATO members and allies together with the U.S., well, it's three-quarters of global military spending. Uh, and, you know, while, while China is a designated enemy and China is, is approaching a third of U.S. military spending, it's ridiculous uh, for the United States to be frightened into spending even more mm-hmm. because China is a little bit more when it's at a third of U.S. military spending and a small fraction of U.S. and NATO military spending and russia's down around eight percent of u.s military spending uh which is you know a major reason why china is being lifted up uh as a justification for buying weapons and Mm. instigating trouble in taiwan Mm. so do you reckon david that the reason why the u.s is at the forefront of the trade right to to sell is mainly to recover a lot of this uh, money that you know they're they're spending on themselves, which is like as you said, a tri- it's it's you know astronomical figures in regards to how much they're spending every year uh, without even a you know it's a serious an actual serious threat to their to their shores. Well, when the U.S. gives this money as so-called aid to Ukraine, most of it doesn't get outside the Beltway, the highway around Washington, D.C., which encloses the five biggest weapons dealers on Earth. Uh, Mm -hmm. Number six is in the U.K., by the way. Uh, And uh, when we talk about the U.S. supplying the rest of the world's governments with weapons, well, that money doesn't go to the U.S. government, doesn't Mm -hmm. go to the U.S. public. It goes to those same five weapons companies, mm-hmm. uh, which 
which take a bit of it and fund election campaigns for uh, for members of the U.S. Congress and the president of the United States, uh, which are called contributions, another form of aid. In, in some places in the world, that would be called bribery. <laughs> uh, and U.S. Congress members openly invest in the stock of these companies and brag about the profits they're going to make as they're instigating wars. Uh, you have over 80 percent of the U.S public, every political ideology against this, uh, and yet Congress won't even hold a vote on ending it while bombing countries in the name of democracy. Explain that one to me. Yeah, um, well, the thing is, um, in, as you said that, it's a form of bribery as well. Now, I'm um, in a more geopolitical point of view, I've also uh, read about it. I'm not really too sure whether it's it's accurate or not. Do you think this also happens in India? Do you think um, Modi is also uh, campaigning through this as well? Th- yeah, through like these... Project Fear. Yeah. yeah. I, I have no particular expertise on India, but I know that India is an ally and a customer uh, of the U.S., government and weapons industry uh, and is not uh, seeking to spread democracy uh, so much as to uh, stay in power. Um, and, you know, I see. A- so staying more towards what uh, the, the current subject, one year on in regards to the Ukraine war, one year on, it really isn't easy to predict how this will end. Um, and world leaders are there. World leaders are fo- focusing on more on supplying weapons than getting both sides to talk and negotiate. Uh, is there an end to this war with the way with the way things are moving? Well, you see some glimmers of light. You see the leaders of France and Germany urging negotiations, at least quietly, to the president of Ukraine. You see China openly proposing a peace plan mm-hmm. with basically the same identical proposals as everybody and their brother has requested for over a year, the same, basically the same agreement that was in the Minsk II agreement that was rejected, uh, not complied with by Ukraine. Uh, you know, what, what would solve this is no secret. Uh, it's a question of finding the political will uh, in Ukraine and in Washington, uh, and uh, as well as in Moscow. Uh, and do I predict it? Uh, you know, I think there's some chance because... As gullible as the Western public is to war propaganda, it also tires of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And for no particular reason, because not because they've learned any facts, people simply stop supporting wars uh, mm-hmm. after a year, a year and a half. Uh, so, you know, that's one place to find some hope. Yeah, especially when you're paying like 600 quid a, a, a month for gas and electricity. <laughs> so you, you, you would eventually want all of this to end, wouldn't you? Yeah, because like uh, as our first question, you know, with this kind of expenditure that a government, you know, in your case, the US government, in our case, the UK, is that money that is being spent on a war, which is actually not really your war, but you're supporting someone else's war, a proxy war. How does that benefit really your own you know, your own uh, citizens, really, in the long run? Well, it doesn't. It puts all life on Earth at growing risk of nuclear Mm. apocalypse. It impoverishes the world. It sabotages uh, necessary cooperation on poverty and pandemics and and environmental crises. Uh, And it takes 
money directly out of the U.S. government uh, that could be going into human and environmental needs uh, that could transform not just the United States, but the world. This is the kind of money we're talking about. It, it almost mm-hmm. sounds silly to say that money home and spend it in Ohio if you have any idea how much money it is. Uh, and you know, we're starting to see rallies even in the United States against this. You're seeing bigger rallies in Italy, Germany, France at U.S. military bases in Germany in the past couple of days. Uh, and, you know, people people whose economy is suffering, but who also have, you know, paid a little attention to who just blew up their pipeline. Mm. I mean, do you feel that, uh, I mean, I'm likening this maybe incorrectly to uh, U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam and then ultimately uh, U.S. pulling out of Vietnam, not because uh, it wasn't going to win the conventional war, uh, and pretty much, you know, kind of lay waste to Vietnam as a country, but it was more with, uh, due to public sentiment at home that you know the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam eventually. So, ultimately, the only way to stop uh, this war and actually bring uh, both both uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia to some kind of détente, some kind of negotiation, is popular opinion globally. I think it, there ha- we have to have uh, an uprising of nonviolent, massive uh, public pressure and resistance mm-hmm. to this. Uh, as we as we saw uh, 20 years ago this month uh, with the with the proposal for a war on Iraq, uh, yeah. we saw it much quickly than with Vietnam, where it took years of mm-hmm. carnage before you had uh, those massive demonstrations, which were much larger than those during the war on Iraq. Here we're slower. We're slower than we were with Iraq, but we're faster than we were with Vietnam. Uh, you know, there's some hope that it's going to grow uh, soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, David, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. 0208 and, you know, if we uh, look, I think, uh, Rana, you know, what are the Islamic principles of justice and global peace then? Well, in chapter 3, verse 65 of the Holy Quran, it is said, come to a world equal between us and you. Explaining the golden principle illustrated in this verse, His Holiness Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community said, Here the Quran has laid down a golden principle in the cause of peace, whereby it states that people should focus on those things that unite them. In terms of the major religions, the unifying figure is God Almighty himself. But this does not mean that a religious person can have nothing in common with a non-religious person. Thus, the Holy Quran has taught us how to build a peaceful, multicultural society where people of all faiths and beliefs are able to live side by side. The key ingredients are mutual respect and tolerance. Accordingly, at another place, the Quran has instructed that Muslims should not speak against the idols or deities of others because in, inter- in, in reaction, they would curse Allah and a cycle of perpetual grievance would result. Mm. So this is the, you know... It's like an eye for an eye. It's like that, that cycle of revenge, really. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's always going to have to be in the sense that, you know, you take it personally. Uh, would you ever want to abuse someone's parents? Would you mm. Would you want your own parents to be abused? Because that's going to be the natural sort of uh, you know reaction of that person. So mm-hmm. let's just not even go to that st- stage straight away. Mm-hmm. As long as you're kind to other people, 
you know, they, you should expect kindness from them as well. But there are cases where, you know, in, when you're talking about war trade, this is just, you know, just just digressing from it. Um, can you be too nice and can you be too trusting of mm-hmm. someone? Uh, whereas if you're sitting on a, on a, you know, on a treasure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, do you feel as if there could be a point where that person who you're too nice to... Um, takes advantage. Takes, it takes advantage of it. Okay. So, um, right, okay. In, when we, if we bring I'll it back to this, I'll never sit on a treasure so, show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So, what I'm just what the point I'm trying to make make mm. here is that yes, peace is the it's the. It, hopefully, you would want mm. the other person or the other group or the other. Well, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, I should say that uh, God's greatest gift to humanity is a conscience, right? Yeah. And but also uh, free will. So it's free will to do good or to do bad, bad. right? Yeah. And always, you know, it's it's like water. Water always fo- finds its easiest route down, yeah. right, towards the sea, wherever it may be. So in terms of hum- humans, it's in human nature to have an element of greed, yeah. right? And, you know, you need to curb that element of greed. And so that's, I think that's what It could be greed gonna... and it could also be desperation, okay? Yeah. So... Um, for instence, uh, one thing I we we were always sort of forecasting mm-hmm. that uh, during the pandemic, where all of these uh, you know furloughs and all of these uh, because everyone's working from home, uh, there's no exact uh, trade going on in the economy. So mm-hmm. and and it's the government having to dish out a lot of uh, a lot of its you know reserve money. Now that reserve money has to get recovered somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's going to be recovered through taxes from uh, we're all you know, rising taxes, uh, that's one way of recovering mm-hmm. it. Or is there an easier way? Uh, let's just take someone else's money and let's make an excuse <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah, let's make a valid yeah, excuse. I, I, I don't think, I think, I don't think, right, okay, let's, let's <laughs> this is, you know, these are, these are the sort of forecasts, yeah, right? So, yeah. um, I mean, I don't think we are still um, kind of like, got to the stage whereby yeah. we physically go out and rob another <laughs> yeah, country, it's, right? it's not It's not literally done in that sense. Yeah. That, oh, what, I, what I meant to say is that it's always done in a way... Well, it, I'm not saying it's more always... More sophisticated. It's way. more, oh, there is a need. Oh, there is a need yeah. for democracy. Yeah. But <laughs> is there yeah. a need for democracy? Well, exactly. <laughs> but we've got another clip, actually, we're going to play uh, from His Holiness, Mr. Masra Ahmed. Uh, and he was addressing, actually, uh, uh, in Ontario, in Canada... And he was talking about justice, exactly what uh, Rana was talking about just now. However, still, it does not seem that the the world is learning from the lesson of the past. Foreign policy injustice continues to be prevalent and is fueling wars in different countries, leading to the deaths of innocent men, women and children. Certain major powers continue to prioritize their business interests over and beyond everything else and so are selling extremely advanced weapons to other countries. Even where there is clear evidence that such artillery is being used to kill or maim innocent people and to destroy countless lives. What I am saying is nothing new or a secret but has long been in the public domain. For example, a number of Western countries are continuing to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia that are being used to target the people of Yemen. No Muslim country has large-scale weapons factories that can produce such huge quantities of deadly and sophisticated weapons. And so, 
their only source is the Western world. Some major powers are selling weapons to Muslim governments, whilst other governments are selling weapons to rebel elements in the, in the same country. Thus, both sides are being fueled and armed from the outside. Quite simply, if this trading were uh, stopped, the Muslim countries would have no weapon to fight one another. Even Western writers and commentators have spoken of the hypocrisy and immorality of such international trade. Yet, when questioned about such sales, governments either ignore the question or seek to justify what is patently unjustifiable. All they care about is that their checks clear so that billions are added to their own national budgets. In short, money talks and morality is left nowhere to be seen. How on earth can peace be achieved in such an environment? So those were the, uh, that was the voice the, of uh, His Holiness talking about justice. And, you know, we're just coming towards the end of this segment. But just quickly, Ukraine is the most recent and obvious example of uh, current, uh, the, uh, current West and American uh, ways of indulging in proxy wars. The conflicts in Syria, Afghanistan and Yemen have all resulted in so much unrest, damage and loss of life. Uh, even, uh, I think uh, Rana was pointing out, in India and Pakistan, they themselves spend billions of dollars on state warfare, uh, you know, weaponry, despite, in fact, and we've seen last year, the devastation you know, of uh, the natural disasters, the flooding in Pakistan, but they're still spending on weaponry. Um, so really, in conclusion... I mean, I'm just going to quote uh, words from His Holiness once again. Uh, for many years, I have warned the major powers of the world that they must heed the lessons from history, particularly in relation to the two catastrophic and devastating world wars that took place in the 20th century. So we're just going to go to a short break. Join us after a short break when we will be talking about friendship. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Rana Atta Rahman. So we were just finishing off regarding our first topic, which was uh, weapons profiteering. And I just wanted to conclude or just you know, draw a line underneath that topic with the words of his holiness uh, regarding this. Now, he said, for many years, I have warned the major powers of the world that they must heed the lessons from history, particularly in relation to the two catastrophic and devastating world wars that took place in the 20th century. In this regard, in the past, I've written letters to the leaders of various nations, urging them to set, their, to set aside their national and vested interests in order to prioritize the peace and security of the world, 
by adopting true justice at all levels of society. Most regrettably, now a war in Ukraine has started, and so the situation has become extremely grave and precarious. Furthermore, it is it has the potential to escalate even further, depending on the next steps of the Russian government and the response of NATO and the major powers. Unquestionably, the consequences of any escalation will be horrific and destructive in the extreme, and so it is the critical need. Of the hour, that every possible effort is made to avoid further warfare and violence. There is still time for the world to step back from the brink of disaster, and so, for the sake of humanity, I urge Russia, NATO, and all major powers to concentrate all their efforts on seeking to de-escalate the conflict and work towards a peaceful solution through diplomacy. As the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, I can only draw the attention of the world's political leaders towards prioritizing the peace of the world and setting aside their national interests and enmities for the sake of the well-being of all mankind. Thus, it is my sincere prayer that the world's leaders act with sense and wisdom and strive for the betterment of humanity. So, those were the.、Uh, Uh, just quoting the words of His Holiness Mizwa Mazhar Ahmad,、uh, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, regarding this. So, we're just going to go to a short break. Join us after the short break when we will be talking about friendship. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet, 24 hours a day. So we're back again, and in our second hour, we'll be talking about friendship. And you know, I suppose、uh, I think what we were saying initially,、uh, you know, friends are a big part of our lives. You know, friends and family.、Um, however, making new friends isn't as easy as it was. You know, in day, you know, days gone by, nowadays more people are experiencing loneliness and struggling to make new friends, especially with the pandemic, or maybe even struggling to keep connected due to the distance experienced because of the pandemic. So, you know, today we're going to be talking about the importance of friendships and how we can make those connections. I mean, what does Islam tell us, Rana, about you know the importance of friendship? Well, Islam teaches us the importance of good company and the impact it can have on us. His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed once said, "When you join together, it should be to motivate one another towards righteousness and goodness, rather than to lead one astray." So, friendship in Islam isn't just、uh, the the social aspect of it、mm-hmm. and、uh, just having a good time and just being、uh, happy, which is which is necessary, which、mm-hmm. is in fact just one aspect of it. But the Importance、uh, behind that socializing or behind that connection or touch is、um, to lead one another、mm-hmm. or to influence one another、in、towards good goodness.、Yeah. Uh, so uh, the same thing could happen in regards to other friendships, which lead others towards a what can be perceived a negative、uh, path of life.、Mm-hmm. 
maybe for those people it's not a negative path to life but mm. uh, in regards no, to I suppose uh, you want the best for your friends exactly. right i mean that is the second tenant of islam really yeah. to want for your brother your fellow human being as what you yeah. would want for yourself and something right? which contributes uh, positively to so- to society, society not in a well. negative way not mm-hmm. not something that contributes negatively not just in towards a society but on a personal level mm. on a financial level mm. on a uh, psychological level you know mm. these it, it shouldn't be a friendship which um is something that you would regret Uh, somewhere like a shallow one materialistic it should be a much more in-depth thing but to talk more regarding this we're joined by our first guest today on this uh, particular topic Professor Robin Dunbar now Professor Dunbar is a uh, professor of evolutionary psychology at Oxford University peace and blessings be upon you Professor Dunbar Uh, thank you for joining us on the drive time show well thank you very much always a pleasure to be here Excellent. So we're talking about friendship. Is friendship one of the most important relationships in one's life? Oh, I think it has to be, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> and for two very good reasons. Okay. One is very basic, and that is it's turned out, and we've only discovered this really within the last 10 years or so, not much more, um, that the single best predictor of your uh, mental health and well-being, your physical health and well-being, is simply the number and quality of close friends you have. Not necessarily okay. all friends, but your kind of inner circle of best friends. That The number and quality of those relationships has a huge effect on your uh, health and well-being in, in any number of different ways you care to think about it. So that's one kind of immediate effect. But of course, at the end of the day, the reason we have friends is to have an enjoyable social life, relaxing uh, with 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 our friends. Um, uh, but also, our friends provide value to us in that they help us out when we need to be helped out. If if we're having a bad time, they can give us emotional support or maybe financial support or whatever it is we require to sort of put us back onto our feet again, as you might say. Mm-hmm. So um, I would, my uh, we discussed this early on as well in regards to the maintenance of a friendship. You know, it's um, it requires a lot of sacrifice and a lot of time. So, um, how can we sustain friendship throughout our life? Uh-huh. Uh, there's only one way, <laughs> and that's investing time in them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it depends. When we talk about friends in our research, we include family here, extended family as well as friends. Um, uh, but the dynamics of those relationships differ slightly in that you don't have to invest so heavily in family relationships because they're held there by the family linkages. Um, uh, if you like, friends who are outside the family, you, you have to keep investing time and effort into them otherwise they drift away and they drift away quite quickly Uh, some friends are very very expensive we we devote according to our research about 40 percent of our total available social time wow 40 percent five people 40 percent to five people and then another 20 percent to the next closest group Mm -hmm. of friends and family so 60 percent of your 
social efforts are devoted to just 15 people, round about 15 people. Mm. Um, That's quite high maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very high. Um, But they're the ones that give you pleasure, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, part of the reason for having friends. Uh, But also they're the ones who will come and help you out when are most willing to come and help you out without um, uh, when you need need that help so it's important to keep those levels of investment going otherwise friendships this doesn't happen with family relationships though but friendships will gradually um, fade away because um, uh, they perhaps find some other person to be friends with mm-hmm. or some other person who's willing to give them more time maybe in that sort of draws them away from from you so it is important to keep keep investing in friends and not mm. to forget and i think the the i wouldn't say excuse but one of the things that you hear most when you do drift out of friendships and maybe you find that friendship again over years is that oh you know why why did we drift apart and i i always hear life gets in the way life gets in the way and yeah. maybe whether that's you know, with uh, a new family, new relationships yeah, happening. Uh, and that's understandable, but it's so much nicer when you do revisit or you make those linkages again with an old friend. I mean, which actually brings me on to my next question regarding the technology that we have at our fingertips nowadays. I mean, has that, do you think, Professor, made it friendships more complicated or are they... Yeah, more complicated in the sense that you can actually, you know, with uh, a text or an email or something on your uh, social media account, be misconstrued and end a friendship. Um, it, I, th- I think the answer is it's very complicated mm-hmm. because it depends a little bit on circumstances. So I think it's true to make friends and to keep friendships working uh, undoubtedly, the best way is to be sitting next to them uh, so that you can have a conversation with them in, mm-hmm. um, in, in a very direct sort of way. But it's clear that all these digital media, and that begins with the telephone and uh, all manner email, and then eventually, of course, social media as we have, have it now, all these different um, means of contacting people have proved very valuable. And that's the secret of their success in keeping relationships going, especially if we can't walk around the corner and knock on their door and say, you know, let's go and have a cup of coffee together or something. Um, the the problem uh, problem in a way with, with social media is twofold. One is it um, m- makes you try and keep friendships going when people have moved a long way away which may not be so useful to you. In other words, if those close friendships are important to you because they're the people who will come and give you emotional support when your life falls apart for some reason and you're having problems, um, it doesn't help if they're a long distance away. For that kind of help, you need to be able to knock on somebody's door and say, you know, I need some help. Mm -hmm, Exactly. (laughs) Give, give, Give me a hug. I need some help. Well, um, I need a cup of sugar, <laughs> desperately. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, th- there is a sort of um, kind of issue here about that. It, you, you have to decide. Um, there's no rule. You have to decide whether an, a friendship, uh, a friendship with someone who has moved a long way away, so you can't see them regularly, 
is so important to you that you want to keep them going. That's mm-hmm. fine, but you should not do it just because you can, because if that means you don't find new friends who live near you, then you may be in trouble uh, uh, later on. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the big problem, I think, with... Um, oh, so what we might say is that, that all these social media, and it really it begins with the telephone and it ends with social media is, as we have them now, is more like a sticking plaster to keep the relationship going. But our studies suggest if now and again you don't get the chance to see the person in face-to-face, nothing will stop that friendship quietly dying, mm-hmm. if you like, um, slowly over a long period of time. Um, that's just the nature of how these things work. Mm. The great risk, though, I think, it, with, with um, online media, as everybody has discovered, really, is that it, it, there is a, of meeting people online and having friendships online. It's all right if they stay online. <laughs> mm. But the, that's the big risk you run is, is you're exposed to um, uh, being exploited by scams and so on mm. because mm. you don't know who these people are. Now, our friendships are built on trust, and that trust is built because we can hold somebody by the by the hand or uh, put a, a, an arm around their shoulder or something like that, that physical contact that we engage in all the time and we talk to people, and we can stare into their eyes and see the honesty behind their mm-hmm. eyes, if you like. Mm-hmm. And online, you can't do that, and, and you just risk being exploited because you come to believe that this person is an honest person, but that belief and that person exists only in your mind, in your mm, head. There's nothing rooted in reality, in a yeah, physical presence. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, well, Professor Robin Dunbar, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Uh, great pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a good day. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And we've got a, we've run an Insta story, so uh, and we've asked three qualities a friend should have. And have we had any responses, Rana? Well, yeah, um, most, uh, I, I read the word trust uh, mm-hmm. pretty much. Uh, it's a very prevalent uh, word that's being mentioned here. So a friend is someone who you could trust in as uh, also pressed, uh, Professor Dunbar also um, alluded to this as mm-hmm. well. Is someone who uh, is like family. Uh, mm-hmm. Is you know he has the or they have the um, that that relation as a family. Uh, mm-hmm. The way you would trust your parents probably mm-hmm. or your brother or your sister. Um, and you, but they are not exactly family. Uh, and for some people, maybe they end, end up becoming family at mm-hmm. some point in life. I think there's that old saying, you know, the, the blood's thicker than water, you yeah. hear these things. But I've always like maintained that, look, you know, you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. Exactly. So then, therefore, uh, you hold them to a higher standard. I mean, some of the, the answers we had uh, as to, you know, what three qualities, uh, and, you know, trust being one of them, loyalty, respect, kindness, reliability. So they're all you know, of that ilk, uh, whereby that's, that's the thing. And I, I think one of the points that um, uh, Professor Dunbar was like, uh, alluding to with, say, for instance, social media, is that you don't really have a physical contact, do you? Um, I mean, you exactly. could be talking to an avatar, right? You could, exactly. But if you, uh, I, would, I would have uh, probably, uh, you know, if, if it's someone that you are, aware of and you know you've met them for instance you're 
I know who you are. I know uh, I've met you. I've uh, you shot you at me. <laughs> <laughs> and for instance, at some time when you're going to be away or in Hong Kong yeah. or wherever, whenever you're going to be abroad, we would still, uh, you know, I know I'm talking to you. I know yeah. exactly, yeah. even through the way if I'm talking to you and your responses, mm-hmm. we, that, that connection. So social media doesn't completely get rid of that element mm-hmm. of realness and touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, the distance itself and the length of the distance can. Mm. Uh, and I think you know that's the thing, Rana. Social media, smartphones, this technology yeah. is all but a tool, really, or a platform. So you know, once you've made that first initial, you know someone yeah. physically, you've met them, you've yeah. spoken to them, um, you've engaged with them, then actually, social media can, uh, or you know, your smart technology. Is a boon, is a is a is a benefit, it's really. Just a benefit, and because then I can FaceTime you, right? Exactly, and uh, for families as well, uh, if someone has to migrate to another country, yeah. uh, you know, it's the only way that they th- that person who they've seen before them, mm-hmm. uh, their life is somehow before their their eyes as well from a very fo- from a from a from a very far distance. So, mm-hmm. um, social media has its uh, benefits in regards to maintaining friendship. Um, but yeah, eventually mm. the touch has to somehow come back to it. Mm, exactly. So um, one of the things that uh, Professor Dunbar was saying, and he suggested that you know spending quality time with our friends encourages our brains to actually release endorphins, which in turn makes us relax and calm. And the calmer we feel, the greater we're able to deal with stressful situations. Uh, according to Campaign to End Loneliness, 45% of adults occasionally feel sometimes or often lonely here in England. This equates to 25 million people. So that's a lot of people who feel lonely, right? Yeah. Uh, and without a friend. That's every second person in your life. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's two of us here, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. So yeah, you know. one of us is in that 45. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not lonely. I mean, like well, I we've say, got over friends. the weekend. We've, me and you are like mice and men. We're like, we've, we've yeah, got that exactly. mice and men feeling. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, we're, we're joking about it. And I suppose that's one of the things that you, you can have with your friends, yeah, and your associate or acquaintances, that you can have a joke, right? Yeah. Uh, but, one of those, um, I suppose, things that happened globally like recently was the pandemic. Now, during the pandemic, older people who have been used to going uh, to the office, maybe meeting at uh, you know social events, uh, and you know, if you think about it, prior to uh, COVID, you've got this routine in your life, and then suddenly this pandemic happens to you right and we hadn't seen i think that kind of pandemic for over 100 years so not in our lifetimes okay so most people kind of like quite happily going about their lives 15 20 years bang pandemic happens right lockdown so you can understand why um i suppose the older generation middle-aged generation who are used to having social discourse and seeing people and meeting up with people that it's going to affect or have an adverse mental effect uh, on you. Exactly. And the uh, point that you're making here in regards to um, uh, this being a routine of your life, something that you're just so used to doing, um, but you have never preempted or anticipated that such a lock, such a pandemic would yeah, completely change right? your life. You know, you're not, you're not, we're yeah. not mentally ready for that. We would yeah. never... 
um, we had heard that, um, okay, so when pandemics happen, this could happen, that could happen. Mm-hmm. And now it's happened. Yeah. And you would just hope, okay, well, this is going to last a few weeks. Oh, no, it's lasted no, exactly. so many months and it's yeah. just not ending. Oh, God, when yeah. is it going to end? Yeah, exactly. So um, it completely alters your, you know, everything. A lot of people who you were close to, mm-hmm. once once it's come out, of, once you've all come out of it, are you still the same with yeah. each other? So yeah. Um, yeah. it's massively changed our lives. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to talk more about friendships, we're joined by Louise Golden. Uh, Louise is founder and CEO of the Together Project. Peace and blessings Hello. be upon you, Louise. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Thank you for having me. So can you just tell myself and our listeners a little bit more about you know, what the Together Project is about? So we create opportunities for people of different age groups and different walks of life to come together and, and form friendships. Um, in the UK, we're, we're massively segregated by age. We're one of the worst countries in the world, actually, for it. And that causes a whole load of issues at an individual and a societal level. So loneliness, as we've been talking about, and isolation, ageism, stereotypes. So we create opportunities for people to come together, such as we run music groups for babies and toddlers and their parents and older adults living in care homes and intergenerational storytelling sessions in local libraries to help address some of those challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so in regards to... Um, if, hold on, sorry. So, <laughs> so I think what Ryan is like saying, you know, we were talking just prior to you coming on, on online or you know, coming on live about age, right? So age separation is a huge problem in today's society that you, you pointed out. I mean, what steps can be taken to reduce that loneliness and help different age groups form stronger and healthier relationships? I mean, you know, we, we, we threw out a stat there that 25 million you know, people on a daily basis feel lonely here in, the, in England. Yes, absolutely. Um, There are some really interesting initiatives happening across the country. So, for example, there are some nurseries and care homes that are co-located. So um, the older adults and children coming together regularly to benefit from each other's company. Um, There are initiatives like students being offered reduced rent um, to live in the same places as older adults and be there as as a friend and a companion. So lots of interesting things happening community organizations such as ours creating spaces for, for people to benefit from each other's company but i think also there's a real role for us as individuals to to look out for our our neighbors and 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 other people in our community you know i i really make an effort to try and uh, strike up a conversation with a friendly face in the supermarket queue or or on the bus and it can be a real lift in your day to actually speak to somebody who you would otherwise never have spoken to. Maybe they're from a different age group from you, different background, um, and it can give you a real boost. And who knows, you, you might be the, the only person that they've had a really interesting conversation with all day. So I think we all really have a role to, to look out for each other in that way. Um, so people nowadays have long distance relations uh, and friendships. Um, so what do we miss when we cannot be around our friends in person? So technology is is wonderful in so many ways. And, you know, you touched before on kind of social media and the role that has for, for keeping us connected. Um, I know a lot of people, um, particularly people with disabilities during COVID, actually said that they felt more socially connected than before the pandemic because suddenly everybody was doing online Zoom quizzes or book clubs and that kind of thing. Um, 
so it had a huge role in keeping us connected personally my my dad lives in new zealand and so if it wasn't for technology we would never get to speak but i do think we miss out on um, those interactions that only being face to face can can bring and particularly touch you know touch is such important uh, so so important for humans um a friendly kind of hand on the shoulder if we're feeling down or a or a hug those are the kind of things that, that are, you know you can can get missed if you're just on a WhatsApp group chat. Or the scent um, of a person, so a familiar scent as well. Yes, of exactly. And and just being able to just be with somebody, you know, those comfortable silences that you can enjoy with a good mm-hmm. friend that you don't really get on a Zoom call. Yeah, exactly. You just have that uh, unease when it goes silent, right? And yeah. you feel that, oh, it's, it's gone over like half a minute. Uh, I have to say something, even if it's totally irrelevant, right? But that's, I suppose... Um, the level and quality of a friendship when you can actually be quiet and silent together and not feel uh, that there's that pressure to make a sound, really. Exactly, exactly. And there's a, um, a wonderful quote from um, um, Esther Ranson, um, who's done a lot of work around um, loneliness and, and kind of an older age. And she said that when her husband passed away, she said, I have plenty of people to do something with, but I've lost the person that I just do nothing with. And I think there's, you know, really poignant somebody to just be there with and just even if you're kind of sitting in silence, but it's that companionable silence knowing that you're there for each other. And I think only face to face can can really give you that. Mm -hmm. So uh, lastly, I mean, how, uh, Louise, how does friendship change for people across their lifespan? I mean, does it, you know, does it mature? Is it like a, a cheese getting smellier? (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, you know, does it, you know, does it improve with age? Well, our social circles tend to decrease a bit as we get older. We, we look for quality over quantity. Um, but that's not to say that we can't form meaningful friendships in later life. There's um, a couple of lo- lovely ladies that we work with in, in one of the care homes that's uh, partnered to us. And there was one of the ladies, she's in her 80s, she'd lived there for a few years. And then Joyce moved in and she they've become absolute best of friends. Mm-hmm. And what a wonderful thing in kind of you know later life to suddenly find a soulmate. So there's always the opportunity to make new friends. But I think ultimately we probably come a become a bit more discerning about what we're looking for Um, and we just better understand the kind of friends that are truly going to make us happy and that is people that just get us and celebrate us for who we are you know the the good the bad and the ugly really and and um, that's what we want it's not about friends that can give us status or um, expand you know our Instagram following or anything it's about people that really truly get us and appreciate us and Mm -hmm. are there in the good times and bad yeah excellent well louise it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon thank you very much for joining us on the drive time show thank you for having me take care thank you take care have a good day bye 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at voice of islam uk and what is the islamic perspective regarding keeping good company well in islam we're told to keep good company as it can have a significant impact on our day-to-day life as well as our spirituality. When addressing a Muslim youth, youth organization, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed says, Another point I wish to make, especially to the younger Khudam and Atfal who are still in school or education, is that they must be careful who they keep company with. At your age, your friends and those who you spend time with can easily influence you, as, as has been observed. If you keep poor company, you will pick 
up bad habit, hab, uh, pick up bad habits such as lying, needlessly quarrelling, or even fighting instead of acting truthfully and being kind and considerate. Thus, the younger Qudam and Ithfal must be very conscious of their company. Make friendships with people who are sincere, who are honest, and who are not involved in any immoral or senseless activities. Mm. So his message, um, is, His Holiness's message is very clear and uh, what he expects from those at an age that are developing their, their friendships or understanding of uh, who to pick as friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is basically in line with the uh, building of the community and the quality of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, if you pick your friends in this way, in regards to those who are sincere and uh, honest, it will eventually... Uh, but it's, it's very hard. Okay, let me just interject. Obviously, we yep. will want the best quality friends in yep. terms of their uh, moral and uh, kind of like religious qualities. Yep. But... You won't actually know that until you get to know them, right? Until you get to know them. And your own standard has to be, for instance, if you want to make friends with someone who is, uh, you know, spiritually elevated within themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, they they would want to be friends with you if you're that level as well. But if they see you as someone that, okay, um, you are, you want, they realize that the reason why they are interested in you is because they want to be like you mm-hmm. and if they want to influence you like that and they want to take you on board that's ideally what should be happening but yes you're right um you would only get to know someone uh, what they are uh, by truly engaging with them seeing what they're all about in their day-to-day lives so um yeah so back to the real point uh, to the point uh, islam generally promotes a sense of friendship mm-hmm. which is uh, which which enhances the quality of the overall society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's like, if you think about it, it's just building blocks. Yeah, you know, we are building blocks to the whole society. So if exactly. we want to build um, a just and uh, equitable society, um, you need to have a good foundation to start off with, exactly. and to have that good foundation. But what I'm, I suppose, alluring to is that. You have to really, I mean, someone can say, look, you know what? I'm a straight guy. Mm. You can trust me. Yeah. Yeah. But you won't know the veracity of that statement until you see that what they speak about actually matches up with their actions. Exactly. So that can only happen maybe over a period of time. Um, But I think as you were like telling us and our listeners, what came to that phrase, one of those old phrases came to my mind, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Flock together, yeah. And in regards to um, uh, the, seeing someone for the first time, uh, being impressed with them for the first time, mm-hmm. um, these impressions could change with time as well. Mm-hmm. So um, the more you, the more familiar you become with someone, someone could come across as exactly what you think you would want to see them as, right? But with time uh, and with knowing each other, you might see sides of them which mm-hmm. are not, well, human line, character. Human character in, is multifaceted. I, I would personally perfect. love to see. I, I would personally. That's that's why my point of view is. I would love to see a person in their, in their natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying everyone is like. Oh, you see people. Fake. They're all fakes, right? right? No, I want to see them in their. You know, when yeah, the natural form. In their natural form, where they've got some sort of like, uh, not issues, but some sort of like toughness or hardness mm. going around them and seeing what they are How at they that react. point and you know if they're mm. blunt and if they're not mm. someone who I would say that they are morally at the best that's mm. good enough for me because mm. that's them I mean I right. can understand that and I would I would 
I would uh, accept that person for mm-hmm. being that forever. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you would hope that 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 person would somehow maybe learn. Uh, some something something mm-hmm. good from you um mm-hmm. so let's say uh, patience is a quality that you you may possess mm-hmm. and if that person sees that well i'm not really patient and i'm a very mm-hmm. abrupt and uh, you know maybe i can learn this from him so mm-hmm. maybe this builds it within me so we're joined by our next guest of the day uh, vinyl uh, karania now vinyl is a manager at age uk which is a charity here in the uk obviously mm-hmm. assalamu alaikum peace and blessings be upon you vinyl thank you for joining us on the drive time show Hi, good evening. So um, you're a research manager at uh, Age UK. Can you just tell our listeners a bit more as to what your charity does for, uh, you know, for the, for the, for the elderly in, the, in, in our society? Of course, yes. So um, Age UK is a charity that um, aims to help older people when they need us most. So uh, we try and aim and provide support directly and also campaign for them, ensuring that they're voices are heard when you know decision makers are making decisions on policy um, and so we provide services and support at a national level that's through our telephone befriending service our advice line um, and we also have a network of 125 local AGKs who provide a variety of services to older people in their localities hmm. um, yeah so just building on it what is age UK befriending service and how does it work and is it free to use Yes, yeah, so the HUK befriending service, it is a free telephone friendship service. And what it tries to do, it tries to match um, uh, a person age 60 and over with a volunteer befriender for a regular kind of weekly chat for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means an older person can have a chat with the same person at the same time every week from the comfort of the home. And the way it kind of works is an older person um, gets in contact with us um, signs up to the service, provides information such as what they're interested in, and then HUK tries to find someone who has similar interests mm. um, so they can have you know, have a chat with them. So, Vinod, is this now uh, since you know the end of, say, for instance, the more stringent, um, stringent measures because of COVID, has this now become more of a face-to-face service or is it still like an online service? So the actual national uh, telephone friendship service is a is a telephone service. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's done through telephone calls. Um, but what we also have is some of our local AGK partners. They provide a face to face friending service where a volunteer will maybe come to your house, you know, have a cup of tea, have a chat, or may even help you and kind of you accompany you to different activities. So we've got a, a different types of befriending service to suit um, individual older people, depending on what, they, what works best for them and what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Vinil, how important is it to maintain the quality of friendships as we age, uh, as opposed to, you know, knowing lots of people? So is it better, so, you know, as, as you get older, to just have a, you know, a whole load, a mass of friends who you just know a little bit, uh, you could almost call them acquaintances, right? as opposed to actually just having a handful of friends who are, you know, in your inner circle. What's, 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 what's better? So it's very good, good to have both, but what's really important for, for us as we get older is, yeah, as we get older, you know, um, we're more likely to face challenging situations. Maybe our health declines or we tend to start to lose uh, friends and family members. So having really close kind of strong friendships, the positive friendships, 
it's really helpful um, because it can really help you kind of support you when you need support. They can kind of make you feel better. They're always on call. You can have chats with them. You can celebrate good times with them. You know, they can make you laugh. In fact, it's really important to have those close friendships because they will be there for you whenever you need, whenever you need something or just there for a bit of fun, a bit of enjoyment, a bit of laughter. Mm-hmm. So, Vinod, there is a lot of potential for pain if we have difficult and conflict, conflict-ridden friendships. How do we recognize and stay out of such relationships? Yeah, it's really difficult to recognize when you have those kind of relationships, but there are a few things you can do. I think one thing is to trust yourself and your feelings about your friendships um, and what you think is going on. But it's also helpful to ask yourself questions such as, you, you know, uh, do you, you, do, does your friend kind of make you feel unhappy or anxious when you're in the company? Um, you know, when you spend time with them, do you feel kind of mentally drained? Um, are they not supportive? Are they not encouraging? Um, do they kind of speak to you in ways which are not nice? Um, there are kind of a few kind of things to think to think about, um, and it's really kind of it's really difficult to tell. But if you kind of if your if your friendships are not making you if they're not enjoyable, if you're not looking forward to them, if they're not supporting you, then it's worth asking. You know, are they the kind of friend that you really want? Mm-hmm. Well said, Vinil. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And I think uh, Rana was like, talking about the importance of friendship, okay, throughout your years. But I suppose when you're younger, they have that's when you're kind of like you're planting those seeds aren't you to hopefully get a, a, a you know kind of a strong tree for the for the analogy right growing out of that that friendship uh, and that th- those friendships can actually last a lifetime um and in the holy quran it says oh ye who believe fear allah and be the truthful now i suppose what this reveals this 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 verse reveals is that it tells us to avoid keeping company with those who are not righteous and whose actions exceed all bounds of decency, uh, as doing so will eventually make them neglectful of Allah and their duties as a Muslim. And in this regard, the the holy prophet of uh, Islam, peace and blessings be upon him, did he have any sayings regarding this? Well, on this topic, the holy prophet said, a man, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, a man follows the religion of his friend, so each one should consider whom he makes uh, his friend. In another instance, he said, a good companion is like a man who has musk. If nothing of it goes to you, its fragrance will certainly go to you. And a bad companion is like a man who has bellows. If its suit does not go to you, so black does not go to you, its mm-hmm. smoke will certainly go to you. Mm-hmm. So the Prophet wasallam has basically... Um, emphasized on influence of people around you and what they can uh, how they can influence not just yourself but your development in mm-hmm. terms of your character your psychology uh, and your the way you would eventually react uh, as a result of that influence so a good person is like a is like a nice fragrance okay mm-hmm. and um, as i was uh, even speaking to the, when we were speaking to the um, to the caller 
um, and we discussed how the scent of a person is sometimes something you something you miss. So the 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 essence of the scent itself mm-hmm. in regards to this uh, narration is also being touched upon here. You know that scent is. Um, it, it forms a link, doesn't it? It forms it's, a link. It's, it's and the emotive link. Emotive link, range. which has a reactive uh, reactive uh, action towards it. Mm-hmm. So that is influencing you in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, um, this is a pretty you know strong descriptive um, mm-hmm. uh, part of it, but the negative aspects of some people would also, you know, they would, Impact you as well. Uh, darken you in, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the connotations here are of dark, uh, mm-hmm. darken yourself. So um, we should be looking towards friendships which are bringing us towards the light. Mm-hmm. Okay, so light means goodness. Okay, mm-hmm. so good people are obviously going to be bringing you towards the light of God um, in a more religious and more uh, theological perspective of that. Mm-hmm. So um, this is what the Prophet Sallallahu has emphasized on and mm-hmm. influence of people mm-hmm. is the important aspect. Yeah. There. Well, we're joined by our last caller of the day or our last guest, I should say, of the day, who is also a friend, a friend not only to the uh, to the drive time show, but a friend to myself, my former co-host, Tahir Khalid, who is now a missionary up in Stevenage. Peace and blessings be upon you, Tahir Khalid. How are you? Alhamdulillah, very well. How are you doing? Uh, congratulations over the weekend for that uh, massive win well, by Man U in that thank really you. kind of like very renowned Carabao Cup. Are you not beside <laughs> yourself? <laughs> it's, 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 it's a trophy at the end of the day. Uh, and, I, and I'm happy. I mean, after six long years, we finally got our hands on something, some piece of silverware, even though it's the Carabao Cup. Um, it's still a trophy. It counts. I mean, the Cowboy Cup's been going since, what, the 1960s. So it, it has significance. Well, um, just just hearing your dulcet been called the Carabao Cup. Yeah, I mean, having you know your dulcet tones try to, I suppose, validate that win, <laughs> validate that trophy. I can see a lot of Manchester United fans scrabbling, scrabbling for excuses as to their lack of trophy uh, trophies in the actual, you know, in the in the cases for the past six years. But well done, my friend. The season hasn't ended yet. We we are still. Uh, we're the only team. We are still uh, in all the competitions. Um, so good, um, yeah, good luck with that one, Tahir. Good luck with that one. <laughs> but we we do do we do digress, right? And um, we were talking about you know uh, the topic now uh, for this hour was friendship. So let's look at friendship through the prism of Islam. You know, what are some of the Islamic teachings on coop, keeping? I should say not keeping, keeping good friends. Um, so. The Holy Quran has has spoken about this um, in a few places as well, um, about keeping good friends, keeping in good company as well. Uh, we see from from not only from the Holy Quran but from also um, the the commandments and the instructions, the narrations of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Some of which have already been mentioned um, by your co-host as well. Uh, but in the Holy Quran, in one place, um, in chapter three, verse hundred nineteen, God Almighty states. O ye who believe, take not others than your own people as intimate friends. They will not fail to corrupt you. They love to see you in trouble. Hatred has already shown itself through the utterance of their mouths, and and what their breasts conceal is greater still. We have made clear to you our commandments, if you will understand. Now, 
some aspects of this verse um, deal with uh, the context of the situation at the time um, in 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 Mecca when the verses were being revealed in Medina as well, um, when there were Muslims living alongside Christians and Jews um, and idolaters as well, and some of them, of course turned out to be very strong hypocrites. Some had converted to Islam, but became hypocrites and were, were in a way, um, deceiving the Muslims uh, and causing them grief and harm. Um, and so this, um, this, this, this verse not only talks about that particular aspect and that particular time, but also in the, in the guidance for the future as mm-hmm. well, that when you, when you make friends, Make friends with with those people who you who you can trust um, and who you can call your own. Um, so it's it's not necessary that it has to be your own people as such. But who, when when you refer to someone as your own people, it refers to someone who you can uh, trust, who you can rely upon, who you can uh, you know you have a good uh, strong friendship with, mm. uh, regardless of their background, regardless of their ethnicity. Um, it's when you call someone your own, it's that strong relationship. And that actually forms from a young age mm-hmm. um, where where good morals are inculcated within a child, um, whether that be from your parents, whether that be from school or society as a whole, particularly from, from your household. Islam gives a great stress um, on on making sure that you choose good friends, wise friends who will look out for you, who'll be who'll be good for you. And mm-hmm. and, and your co host mentioned as well, as I mentioned about um that they will um um that they will have a good influence on you. Uh, and and the, the narration about uh the, the fragrance of musk and how much of an influence that is. Even just being in the company and the presence, um it has that influence. And the Quran again it talks about uh, it says that that be with those who are pious, with who are righteous, and that will leave an influence, an impact on you. Um, and and again, again, uh, we see from the example of uh, the the promised Messiah, the founder of our community, the Caliphs as well. They've given strong emphasis on being friends with good people, honourable people, who will be a good influence on you, a positive impact on you. Uh, and also on society as well. Mm. So, Thari, nice to speak to you again. Um, can you share an example of a long-lasting friendship from the history of Islam? I mean, there are a number of um, friendships from the history of Islam that we can we can talk about, but I think the the biggest one or the most prominent example that we have uh, as Muslims is the is the relationship and the friendship of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Uh, and his closest companion, Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq, mm. where they were very good friends uh, from a, such a young age. They grew up together. Um, and um, even before the Holy Prophet claimed to be a prophet, um, he had so much trust among one another, uh, him and Prophet, uh, uh, the Holy Prophet and Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq, um, so much so that when the Holy Prophet had claimed that um, he had proclaimed that I am a prophet, that God has sent his revelation upon me. Um, when his best friend heard, he came running to him and he just asked, is it true? That's it. 
You didn't ask what what's been revealed to you. What what the what's prophet says? Some wanted to do some sort of. He he was like, well, hear me out first. He's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to hear you out. He's like, it's yeah, enough. Exactly. Yeah. It's enough. Your yeah, word is your that, bond. That that trust that they had with one another uh, was so unique, and and uh, I mean, it was so it's such a pure and intimate love, um, which which we see. It's very very hard to find. Similar kinds of of this this love, this pure relationship of of friendship and honesty and trust with one another. He he, he also example. accompanied him to his most like dangerous trip from Mecca to Medina and was in the cave when the um, when the disbelievers were you know they had to somehow mm-hmm. get Muhammad mm-hmm. before he reaches exactly. towards Mecca and he was there you know he put his life on the line mm-hmm. with him as well so. Yeah, and even even when even before that, when he was when he was in the cave, when he was meditating, he would come and visit him. He would send food for him, uh, or he would send a relative to go and uh, send food for him. Uh, but you mentioned quite rightly that that journey, that that dangerous journey which they took together, um, and that the the significance of that friendship was so important for not only for themselves but for for Islamic history as well. That it's been forever scribed in the Holy Quran. Hmm. That uh, if we further build on it, he it got to the point where when he became the first caliph, he he just wanted to completely reflect the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He was hmm. all of his decisions, everything, were because he had seen him so closely. He had seen him from A to Z. He knew what his uh, ethos was, what his mindset was, what hmm. his, what what God had taught him. That he was completely against anything that was against the teachings of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He said, I'm not going to... What the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has said, I am never ever going to... Mm, contradict. Yeah, contradict mm. that. So, so Tahir, are there you know, some steps that we can take right, to put more time, effort and energy into a relationship? Or, sorry, into a friendship. Say, for instance, you know, uh, your buddy's moved to Stevenage and you don't see him anymore. You used to see him on a Monday... Maybe, if he turned up on time. How can... <laughs> what steps... Okay, jokes apart. But what steps can you take, you know, do you, would you suggest, you know, to kind of like improve a relationship, a long-distance friendship? I mean, the, 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 the beauty of having a strong, a good friend um, is that however distant that person may go, mm. you still have a good relationship with them, a close... Uh, loving relationship with them, even um, though you're juxtaposed to them. Oh, of course, of course. I mean, there can be many geographically. Differences that, yeah, there are many other differences. Uh, one might be a chef. One might support Manchester United. One might be <laughs> something, and one might be active. One might be fit and healthy. The other might be trying unhealthy. to be <laughs> trying. Yeah, but I mean, apart from that, I mean, there's so many different things. Which it's about. Uh, honesty, it's about trust, it's about putting time in and and doing things for one another, whether mm. that's helping them uh, understand what uh, what difficulties they're going through in life, uh, whether that's being there for them, whether that's giving a gift to them, uh, just taking time out and being there for them, it goes a long way in improving a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's, there are relationships and friendships where people, it's, it's, it's more one-sided, Mm-hmm. Where, um, where one person is putting all of his efforts and energy into building a relationship, 
um, but but that's not that's not organic because it's not coming from the other side. Mm-hmm. He's not. Uh, it's not, not balanced, is it? Really? It's, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not being reciprocated from the from the other person. Um, so when it so for so firstly, you should identify and realize and recognize who are who who is there for you, who gives time to you, who listens to you, uh, who trusts you, and then build on those friendships. Those are the good, the everlasting friendships. Mm-hmm. Those that mm-hmm. will be there. I mean that phrase through thick and thin. Mm-hmm. There will be the um, whatever difficulties you may come mm. in your life, and I think that's always I say. Yeah, that's that's the proof, I suppose, of the you know the quality of a friend is like when you actually see them under trial. You know, like when everything's hunky dory, it's always good to be it's friends, good. right? It's easy to be friends, but it's when push comes to shove. It's like who can yeah. you really rely on, and that's when they really show their true colours. So, yeah. Hundred percent. We see. We see the example. We see the example from um, from from the 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 life of um, the promised Messiah as well, the founder Mm -hmm. of the MBA Muslim community. Uh, How much there were certain individuals who had an extremely strong uh, affection and love for, uh, and a a strong uh, relationship with, uh, a strong friendship with, Um, and he he actually writes. Uh, in one place, and I don't know if this quote has been mentioned before, um, but he he writes um, in that uh, the fact of the matter is that my friends are a part of me as are my limbs. We observe in our daily lives that even the smallest of parts, such as a finger, for example, if subject to pain, agitates and distresses the entire body. Allah the Exalted is well aware that that in exactly the same way, constantly at every moment, I forever remain anxious and concerned about whether my friends are in a state of ease and comfort. This sympathy and compassion, which I feel is not the result of any artificial effort or unnaturally, in fact, just as a mother is incessantly absorbed in ensuring that each and every one of the children are in peace and comfort, no matter their number, I find my heart replete in the way of Allah with the same tenderness and compassion for my friends. My sympathy is so burning that when I receive a letter from any one of my friends, alluding to a grief or illness with which they are suffering, my disposition becomes restless and disturbed, and I'm taken aback by grief. Mm. As our dear ones increase, this grief increases in equal proportion. There is no hour in which I am free from some form of apprehension and grief, because from among the vast number of my friends, one or the other is inflicted by some form of grief or pain. When they inform me of their worries, my heart becomes perturbed and restless. I cannot describe the amount of time that I suffer from worries. Since there's no being other than Allah Almighty who can deliver one from such worries and concerns, I engage myself constantly in prayers. Uh, and he further writes that I pray for my friends, firstly, uh, my loved ones, the close ones, that God protects them and saves them from uh, any hardship. Um, but, I mean, just like this example, there are many other examples of how, how, how that passion of serving mm-hmm. mankind is instilled alongside having an open heart and being caring uh, and kind to one another. But again, this has to be organic, mm-hmm. and it has to be reciprocated from the other party as well. Mm. Um, and and think, even even uh, if it uh, isn't, uh, sorry, go on. No, and I think you know, um, you know, the the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, community, the Promised Messiah, may Allah be pleased with him. Uh, just in that quotation that you just read us and our listeners, you can see that you know, like. Uh, Abu Bakr. It's a reflection of the 
the Sunnah, the, the traditions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, that actually, although the companions felt that love and friendship for their leader, let's say, yeah, actually the reciprocal, um, it was like actually looking into a mirror and it's totally reflected. That friendship, that love, that bond was actually reflected and most probably um, increased manifold and to his uh, companions. And as Tahir was actually trying to explain the uh, the meaning of your own, I think mm-hmm. this is the best way to uh, describe this this whole passage. You know, I think it just kept coming to me that this uh, the promised Messiah was uh, describing his friends as if they are his own. This mm-hmm. is what it, this is mm-hmm. the meaning of they uh, your friends should be your own in the sense that their pain is your pain, mm-hmm. um, not. Uh, not just the fact that okay, they I can just say that oh, he's he's my own because of X Y Z reason. But the, the, in regards to the issues and pains and mm-hmm. the difficulties one goes through, if you can feel their pain, mm-hmm. that means that uh, yes, this is one of my yeah, own. You, you know, you feel that pain for your children. Yeah. You feel that pain for your parents mm-hmm. if they're going through some sort of issue. Mm-hmm. But on that, we're uh, drawing to a close. Thank you. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Tahir Khalid. Imam Tahir Khalid, take care up in Stevenage. Well done, Manchester United. Thank you very much. Take care. So that is coming to the end of the show. Uh, I'd like to do a big thank you to my co-host, Rana Atta Rahman, uh, Aisha and our producers, Aisha Nassim, Taiba Nasir, Zal Huma <laughs> and Hadia. Uh, Hasib, engineer in the back. Uh, we would not be able to run without him, right? And myself, Talib Man. Here is news.